Hey there, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Blessed Are the Binary Breakers. I hope that you're all doing okay. I've got exciting news for you, or at least I'm excited about it. This month, I've been working on a new site that compiles my various projects in a more organized way, and the URL for it is blessedarethebinarybreakers.com. So check it out if you want access to episode transcripts, or if you're interested in any of my other work. The only other housekeeping to be done at this end of the episode is to put out a call for interviewees. If you are trans and or non-binary or otherwise not cisgender and you are interested in being on this show, email me at queerlychristian36 at gmail.com. You can be of any religion or faith background and you would be welcome to talk about anything you want so long as it's somehow related to faith and gender. Thanks to all my lovely patrons on Patreon.com, I'm able to pay the people I interview a small honorarium for what amounts to about an hour of your time, if that sweetens the pot for anyone. This episode is going to be a bit different from most. Instead of an interview, I'm going to be bringing some ancient figures to the table, drawing from the scriptures of several world religions. Now, doing this doesn't come without risk. First of all, because I'll be sharing stories from faiths and cultures that are not my own. I make sure to rely on authors who are part of the religions I discuss. And if I slip up anywhere, I sincerely apologize for that, and I welcome correction. The other risk with this episode is about whether it's appropriate to apply modern and western labels to historical persons. So while I try to avoid calling the historical figures I'll discuss trans or queer, I do believe that there are things in their stories that resonate with trans persons today. After all, each of these figures breaks out of the gender roles assigned to them, sometimes facing condemnation or ridicule for doing so. Powerfully, the figures I'll be discussing share their gifts and wisdom with their communities in ways that bring healing and transformation to themselves and to others. That's sort of the connecting theme for today's episode, enriching our communities, whatever those communities may be. In this time of uncertainty and isolation, ways we can reach out to one another with healing and support is on the forefront of many minds. Trans persons today bring so much to their communities, in the form of the same kinds of gifts anyone else might bring, but also through our unique insights. Our various experiences open us up to new understandings of the divine, or a unique look at what it means to be marginalized and um, what it means to stand in solidarity. With that in mind, I thought it could be cool to see how figures like us have been doing the same across many times and many places. Please do be aware that these stories include descriptions of transphobic sentiments and violence. Take care of yourselves. Let's get started with a tale about the Hindu figure Shiva, described by Devdut Patnayak as the ultimate binary breaker. This past fall, I read a book that Patnayak published in 2002 called The Man Who Was a Woman and Other Queer Tales from Hindu Lore. I came to the book knowing only the shallowest details about Hindu faith and came away from it with a much deeper appreciation. One thing that Patnayak emphasizes throughout his text is how Hinduism is a religion that naturally thrives on variation 
and fluidity and contradiction. Here is what he says about the impression created as one hears Hindu lore. The impression created, he says, is that life is a journey that does not begin with birth or end with death. There is no one Big Bang or one apocalypse. Instead, there are innumerable days of doom and countless days of creation, alternating with unfailing regularity in the ever-turning, ever-transforming cosmic merry-go-round. As one oscillates between the land of the dead and the land of the living, genders change, orientations change, identities change, the future being determined by the past. Masculinity and femininity are reduced to ephemeral robes of body and mind that ensheath the sexless, genderless soul. The ultimate aim of life then becomes an exercise in appreciating the beauty of existence, understanding its limitations, before finally transcending it. End quote. Isn't that cool? And it's true. As I read through all the stories this book presented me with, it did become clear how genders and sexualities, along with everything else, fluctuate as people die and get reborn, fall in love in one life, and unite with their beloved as a different sex in the next, and how spiritual beings that interact with the material world slip off one gender and put on another as it suits them. One thing that Patnaik finds most interesting about these scriptures, in which no form is absolute, no state of being permanent, is how they interact with Indian society, in which a person's life is determined by things like their sex and caste, things assigned to them that they cannot change without facing major consequences. Why does Hindu scripture offer tales of fluidity and change, while the Hindu society that Patnaik knew in 2002 is structured so rigidly? Well, part of the issue is colonialism, unsurprisingly. Before Britain invaded India and forced it to adopt Western anti-sodomy laws, there was more tolerance of sexual and gender diversity. That's not to romanticize Hinduism, as Patnaik is quick to note. There was no perfect, unproblematic time in Hindu history. Still, much of the queer phobia now present is because of imperial interference. Abstinence was seen as the more spiritual path, but it was only after colonial influence that same-sex activity and cross-dressing became viewed as offensive and obscene and thus were outlawed. I won't go much further into the complexity of how Hinduism untainted by British influence viewed gender and sexuality, because Patnaik does a much better job of it than I ever could. But one thing he does note involves the difference between some of the manifestations of the divine principle, who are often called gods in English. Vishnu is the manifestation, or god, that sustains creation, including the social order, his role is to maintain the status quo. Shiva, on the other hand, is the destroyer, the only god who breaks free from the status quo. He destroys everything that keeps us earthbound. Patnaik's book is full of stories about Shiva doing things that a person assigned male is not expected to do, such as a story where he gives birth, another where he castrates himself, and still another where Shiva fuses together with his consort Parvati to form an androgynous being. 
I am going to share just one story in the book in which Shiva becomes a milkmaid in order to dance with Krishna, an incarnation of Vishnu. Here's Patnaik's passage on this story. Every night, the milkmaids of Vraja would circle Krishna and dance in the meadows of Matuvana while he played the flute. This was the mystical dance of union with the supreme divine principle known as Maharas. Shiva, enchanted by the splendor of this dance, decided to participate in it. He arrived on the banks of the Yamuna along with Parvati. Parvati joined the sacred dance, but Shiva was prevented from entering the magic circle because he was a man. In the Maharas, only Krishna was male. Everyone else was female. Determined to join, Shiva bathed in the river Yamuna, and the river goddess transformed him into a woman. In this female form, Shiva entered into the magic circle and began to dance. As the dance continued into the night, the milkmaids noticed that Krishna gave more attention to the new arrival. Krishna's favorite, Radha, demanded an explanation. Krishna replied, He is Shiva, the supreme cosmic dancer, my teacher. I dance with him, for him. The milkmaids saluted Shiva and watched, spellbound, the divine dance. End quote. I love this story for the beautiful image of this dance, which Patnayak says breaks free from all social norms, and in which all boundaries are broken, all identities shattered. Of course, Shiva, the divine binary breaker, is drawn to it. And my favorite thing about this story is that it is reenacted among a certain sect of Hindus in a way that offers a haven for anyone assigned male at birth who wishes to identify as or express themselves as women. The Sakhis of Radha, as they call themselves, are devotees of Krishna assigned male at birth who, like Shiva, become milkmaids so that they can merge with Krishna in the mystical union of this dance. Like Shiva, they break free from material reality, from the constraints of the status quo in the dance. Tragically, the Sakhis of Radha, as well as other groups of gender-variant or non-conforming Hindus, like the Hijra, are often targets of criticism and mockery in the modern age. But that doesn't stop them from connecting with the divine in the ways that fulfill them. And often, they offer their gifts to their communities, whether that means the community of their own sect or a wider Indian community. For more information on the life of Hijras in the present day, I turned to Ina Goel, founder of the Hijra Project. She has worked alongside Hijras for a good decade now and holds the title Honorary Hijra, having been ritually adopted into a Hijra community by a guru. In a 2019 article, Goel describes Hijras thus, Distinct from transgender and intersex identities in other communities, Hijras occupy a unique and contradictory place in Indian society. Hindu mythology deifies them, and British colonialists demonized them. So today they are revered by many as demigoddesses and reviled by others as deviant victims of bad karma. For more than a century, they were ostracized almost to the point of being forgotten. Now, Hijras are reclaiming their lost position in society through religion. Goel points to one origin story for the power of the Hijras. 
that told in the Ramayana, a 2,300-year-old epic in which Lord Rama is banished from his kingdom for 14 years. When his subjects try to follow him into exile, Goel says, he tells the men and women to return to their city. His hijra followers, not belonging fully to either gender, feel unbound by his order, and they stay. Touched by their loyalty, Lord Rama grants them the ability to bestow blessings at weddings, births, and other important occasions. Even though hijras have faced persecution and erasure since their criminalization in 1871, their livelihood has centered around blessing. They typically earn money, Goel explains, by asking for voluntary donations in exchange for their blessings, as well as by performing at weddings and stag parties, begging, and engaging in sex work. Above all, however, Hijra's loyalties belong to their own Hijra community and to their guru. I direct listeners to the link to Ina Goel's article in the episode notes for much more information about Hijra community life, as well as the ongoing fight for full rights for Hijras and for the transgender community in India. The beginning of Goel's article describes a tent at India's largest spiritual festival. A crowd of followers cram into the tent to receive advice and offer gifts to the Hijra inside. This took place in 2019, just a year ago. There is hope that Hijra's gifts can be respected and celebrated by their people so that they can enrich their wider communities. The Hijra community has for centuries experienced the tension of belonging to and facing rejection from their fellow Hindus. I found something similar in how some Jewish writers relate the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis with their own experiences. Many have a strong sense of loyalty towards both the queer community and their Jewish communities, while also feeling like outsiders in some regard. They point to Joseph as a figure who went through similar things, and yet brought life to his people and to all of Egypt. Joseph's story begins in Genesis 37, where we are told that he is the 17-year-old child of Jacob, and that his older half-brothers despise him because he said bad things about them to their dad, and because he is clearly Jacob's favorite. On top of that, Joseph tells his brothers about some dreams, where Joseph is elevated not only above the brothers, but even above their father. So full of hatred are these brothers that they throw Joseph into a pit, then sell him to slavers. They take the special garment that Jacob gave to Joseph and dip it in blood so that they can tell Jacob that his favorite son was killed by a wild beast. What is it about this young Joseph that made his brothers so deeply hate him? What did he tell Jacob about them that made them so angry? What was so threatening about his dream of being lifted up high when he doesn't seem to be in any position to actually achieve it? And finally, what's with the garment that Jacob gave him anyway? Michael Vera claims that Joseph's brother's rejection is a mix of taboistic fear and jealousy that is similar to the unconscious impulses that manifest in some forms of homophobia. These brothers may or may not be able to put it into words, but they just know there's something off about Joseph. For one thing, according to the Jewish Midrash, Joseph was more feminine than someone of his age and assigned gender was supposed to be. Bereshit Rabbah 134.7 suggests that even at 17, Joseph behaved like a boy, penciling his eyes, curling his hair, and lifting his heel. 
with a boyish or feminine presentation, running off to dad to tell on his brothers, dreaming big dreams, Joseph doesn't fit in. While his brothers hate him for it, thankfully Joseph has at least one person in his corner. His father Jacob accepts his child's differences and even offers a gift that demonstrates that acceptance. The garment, often translated from the Hebrew as something like ornamental robe, coat of many colors, long-sleeved tunic, or, in one popular musical, technicolor dream coat. The Hebrew phrase used for this garment is ketonet pasim, and it occurs only one other time in the Bible. Alongside Joseph, the only other figure in scripture to wear a ketonet pasim is David's daughter Tamar, many centuries later. Tamar's ketonet pasim is described in 2 Samuel 13, 18 as how the virgin daughters of the king were clothed in earlier times. In other words, you might just call this special garment a princess dress. Joseph is just a teenager in a pretty dress, dreaming big dreams of love and respect. But Joseph's brothers see something dangerous in him. Gender nonconformity is a threat to their own masculinity, to their own way of life. So they attack. They rip the princess dress from Joseph's body, throw him in a pit, and sell him away. Karen Lee Ehrlichman connects Joseph's dreams and the violence he faces to today's LGBT youth. Like Joseph, she says, queer Jews have a part of them that is ba'ah ha'cha'lomot, a keeper of the dream, that is endangered by the savage beasts of loss, ostracism, and betrayal. She says that queer Jews may dress in ways or speak truth that others find quite threatening. We also cultivate a powerful set of tools for navigating through multiple coexisting realities. Joseph's gifts as a dreamer and visionary challenged the conventional assumptions of the times for Jews and Egyptians alike. End quote. Before we get to just how Joseph challenged assumptions, we have to continue from where we left off in his story. His brothers have just sold him into slavery in Egypt. But Genesis 39 assures us God is still with Joseph. While Joseph's own brothers fail to see the divine spark within him, Genesis 39.3 says that his Egyptian master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. So this master puts Joseph in charge of everything he has, and the whole household prospers for it. But just as he gets lifted up, Joseph is dropped down again. There's a whole bit in the story where he gets thrown into prison for a crime he didn't commit, but he uses his gift of dream interpretation to gain favor with his guards, his fellow prisoners, and eventually with the pharaoh himself. When Joseph predicts upcoming famines and offers advice for how to prepare, pharaoh is so impressed that he puts Joseph in charge of everything. Genesis 41 tells how Pharaoh puts his own signet ring on Joseph's finger, dresses Joseph in garments of fine linens, puts a gold chain around Joseph's neck, gives him a new name, and gets him a wife. And under Joseph's God-given wisdom, all of Egypt prospers. Even when the predicted famine comes, Egypt has plenty of food stored up. Suddenly, whole nations are lining up in Egypt to receive the fruit of Joseph's wisdom, including his family. Joseph's half-brothers, the very ones who had sold him into slavery a few decades past, come to Egypt to beg for food. 
Suddenly, the sibling they did not want becomes the very person they so urgently need. They come face to face with Joseph. But the weird thing is, they have no inkling that it's him. Mikhail Vera suggests that the reason Joseph's brothers fail to recognize him is because of his transness. The fine clothing, jewelry, and new name that Pharaoh had given to Joseph, along with the makeup worn by high-ranking Egyptians regardless of gender, transformed Joseph into someone so different that these half-brothers have no clue it's him. There is more to the Joseph story than I have time to share, but basically Joseph pulls a little trick on his half-brothers to see if they've changed their ways. When he attains his proof, Joseph reveals his identity in a moment that some scholars compare to a coming out scene. Jace Schwartz argues that Joseph is finally able to embrace his brothers because he is strategic about coming out as himself. Joseph knows he is in a position of power and physically safe. He tests his brothers by asking about Benjamin in an attempt to learn if he is also emotionally safe. If his brothers will cast out Benjamin, just as they did to him in the past, Joseph has no need to give them the opportunity to harm him again." End quote. Joseph reunites with his siblings, whose hearts have opened to embrace all that he is. And because of Joseph and the wisdom that his differences bring, countless families and whole nations survive famine. In our day, too, trans people can have happy endings. The transphobia and ignorance that dry up love and leave us hungry for justice can be overcome by knowledge and remorse. The creative gifts and joy expressed by trans persons who are able to live into their true selves enrich the whole world. In this story of Joseph's gifts to the world, Karen Lee Ehrlichman hears a call to LGBT and queer Jews today. She says, what are our graced responsibilities as drag-wearing, gender-transgressive, sexual outlaw, boundary-crossing, queer Jews at this particular moment in history? Our spiritual, cultural, and political roots are inextricably entwined with our brother Joseph, and like him, our tasks are to utilize all of our best skills when needed to remember our ancestry and identity even when our own families have exiled us, and to honor our deepest truth. My friends, we've come to one last example of a figure in faith history who can resonate with trans persons today. This one hails from my own tradition. It's the story of Joan of Arc. Like Joseph, Joan of Arc faced violence for wearing clothing that her assigned gender was not supposed to wear. Also like Joseph, Joan shared her gifts, the wisdom and courage gifted to her by God, with her communities. And while those in power reviled her for it, her fellow peasants adored her for it. I've written about Joan of Arc before, on my website, TransChristianity, which you can now find as one section of blessedarethebinarybreakers.com. What you're about to hear is the same information on Joan that I share there. St. Joan of Arc received a call from God at age 17 to put on men's clothing and lead the French army to victory. When interrogated later about her clothing choices, Joan declared that she dressed and fought as a man on the authority of God and his angels. 
Like Joan, many of us experience living openly as trans as an irresistible call from something deep inside and beyond ourselves. Before her capture, Joan won the support of the French Prince Charles, who placed her at the head of an army of 10,000 peasants in 1429. With her hair cropped short and round in the fashion of a young man, a suit of armor, and an ancient sword, Joan fit what Kittredge Cherry of QSpirit.net identifies as the medieval archetype of the Holy Crossdresser. While the church would soon burn her at the stake for her cross-dressing, the peasants adored Joan in her armor. As Cherry explains it in her Q-Spirit article on Joan, Joan's cross-dressing did not disturb them. In fact, they seemed to honor her for her transgender expression. They crowded around her to touch her and her armor, just as the woman of Mark V is desperate to touch Jesus' robe and be healed. Jewish, Marxist, transgender activist Leslie Feinberg argues that the peasants held Joan's transgender presentation in highest reverence because it followed after what Joan's judges called the custom of the Gentiles and the heathen, wherein Gentile doesn't mean non-Jewish, but rather refers to the free farming communities still organized into gens, the family unit of cooperative matrilineal societies. What Feinberg is saying is that before empire and church joined forces in Europe to bring about feudalism, many cultures across the continent were matrilineal and also saw gender diversity as something to revere, not to repress. The peasants' devotion to Joan is evidence that even as late as the 15th century, the ancient honoring of gender-variant persons lingered in some pockets of European countryside. The ruling Christian class could not stomp it out, not completely, though that wouldn't stop them from trying. After Joan won him the French crown, Prince Charles abandoned her to the Burgundians, who captured her on May 23, 1430, and sold her to England. From there, the Inquisition tried and tortured her between January 9, 1431, up through her execution on May 30th of that year. They subjected this teenager to agony and utter humiliation for daring to claim divine authority regarding her gender variance. Fury and grief boil up in my stomach to think of what they subjected Joan and her body to, all too reminiscent of what so many trans persons are subjected to in our own time. Elements of classism and misogyny are at play in Joan's execution, as is fear of witchcraft, but Kittredge Cherry claims that the greatest affront to church authorities, then as now, was the audacity of someone being both proudly queer and devoutly Christian. After all, one of the most heretical aspects of her cross-dressing to Joan's inquisitors was that not only did she wear men's attire, but that she did so even when receiving communion. On many occasions, the inquisitors' notes read, you received the body of our Lord dressed in this fashion, although you have been frequently admonished to leave it off, which you have refused to do, saying that you would rather die than leave it off save by God's command. Just as transphobic Christians attack trans persons today, Joan's inquisitors told her that her cross-dressing was heretical, a thing contrary to divine law and abominable before God and forbidden by all laws. They were outraged that she would not stop showing up to court in deformitate habitus, Latin for monstrous dress. But Joan 
saw through their hatred and knew her apparel to be not monstrous but holy, declaring, For nothing in the world will I swear not to arm myself and put on a man's dress. I must obey the orders of our Lord. The courage with which Joan followed God's calling is a beautiful gift for trans persons of faith today. As Leslie Feinberg writes, I wish I'd been taught the truth about Joan's life and her courage when I was a frightened, confused trans youth. What an inspirational role model, a brilliant transgender peasant teenager leading an army of laborers into battle. The Catholic Church admitted their mistake 25 years after Joan's violent execution, though it was not until 1920 that she was officially canonized as a saint. Perhaps the church's motives in overturning her conviction are less than pure. Recognizing that her popularity among peasants could not be quenched, they co-opted it for their own. But the fact remains that the church could not deny Joan's holiness for long. I pray that church authorities and communities everywhere will one day realize the incredible holiness that is a trans person embracing and living into who and what God has created them to be. Our very transness is a gift, one that has been rejected and reviled for far too long. So there you have it. Three tales from across the ages, showcasing gender-diverse persons with powerful gifts and insights for the world. Now, not all of us trans and non-binary folks are imbued with the power to bless others, or to tell the future, or to chat directly with our gods. But we do each have some sort of gift to share with our communities, whether that's specifically our fellow trans communities or our particular faith communities or cultural communities or the whole world. If you are trans yourself, I invite you to ponder, what gift do you bring to the world? How can you use your unique talents or wisdom to support yourself and revitalize others? One thing you might do, if you feel so called, and it's safe for you to do so, is contact me at queerlychristian36 at gmail.com to discuss getting your story on this show. If you are cisgender and listening to this, how can you prepare your communities to better receive the gifts and presence of transgender persons? What can you do to support and stand with trans communities in your area? especially in this time of crisis when many trans persons are among the most vulnerable because of the violence they face when seeking health care, housing, and other basic resources. If you want to offer your support to the trans and non-binary folks who share their stories on this podcast, there are so many ways you can do that. Tell people in your life about Blessed Are the Binary Breakers. Rate the show on iTunes or wherever you listen or offer your financial support by visiting patreon.com slash queerlychristian or ko-fi.com slash queerlychristian. As always, I extend my deepest gratitude to my patrons who support me with $12 a month or more. Ron Hartzler, Remy Page, Willow Hoving, Jay Gebner, thank you. You rock so much, and I hope that y'all are doing all right. That's it for this episode. Take care, everyone, and go break some binaries and be a blessing to the world with your life.